Welcome to another episode of our Innovation Sandbox series from the Data Analysis Bureau podcast. The Innovation Sandbox is a collaborative initiative at the confluence of industry and academia, allowing both academic research on real-world data sets and the transfer of cutting-edge machine learning research into industry application. In this episode, we're catching up with Kodai and Hamid. We heard from them earlier in the series. Kodai's project was about identifying how to predict UTI risks in care homes. He was supervised by Hamid and co-supervised by Eric, who joins us this time as well. Kodai's research followed five main stages. Data extraction, data pre-processing and analysis, baseline modelling, main method modelling and evaluation of models. First, we'll hear from Kodai, who will talk about the type of data they had access to. So I think when we last spoke, we were kind of working with smaller amounts of data. What ultimately happened was that we needed to kind of use a form of like a restored database and that where we would just get back all the kind of data from the past and then use that to work with the project and model. That was in start of March. That was finally set in stone. And from there onwards, we just went on with testing what we had already done, you know, with the smaller database with regards to the baseline model. Will the results be drastically different? It really wasn't. And then we were just getting on with the main methods from there onwards. And yeah, that's how the project kind of went with regards to the data, uh, acquiring the data and kind of finalizing what data to use. So to recap. Kodai was working with three types of data. First, there were physiological measurements like temperature, blood sugar and pulse rates. Second, there were the infection records themselves. And third was a rich mixture of behaviours recorded by the care home workers. We call it behavioural action. So, you know, just simple things like how much food they had or the kind of most important ones are the amount of urine output or how much sleep they get or do they you know, cause any trouble? Do they have any irregular behaviours? Uh, things like that. So... That's the data that we used throughout the project. Here's Eric now to tell us more about why this data is so special. In all of that data, the bit that is, I think, particularly interesting and unique is this behavioural actions data, right? The fact that the carers are collecting between 100 and 150 actions about an individual resident per day, and these are quite granular actions. And also there's an amplitude that can be applied to the action. So not only did you have a cup of tea, but how much of it did you finish? It's that data that can then be combined with some of that physiological data that is perhaps better understood, you know, obviously clinically. And in fact, other projects that people have done previously trying to apply clinical physiological data to diagnostics uh, effectively. So on to the data analysis. I think the main thing that we got out of it was that it's very specific and unique to the kind of care homes environment. A lot of the physiological measurements that you see in a normal kind of healthy human, so things like, you know, blood pressure levels or uh, blood O2, blood sugar levels, some are very normal across all residents in care homes. But for some measurements, we saw that, you know, they were either like really high, mostly Take systolic blood pressure, for example. It should be in general about from 80 to 120 mmHgs. What we saw in kind of the data that we had across all the residents were, you know, a bit higher than that in the range of like 100 to 160 or something like that. We found that as we enlarged the data set, we were able to find more features of the data that showed kind of uniqueness to the care homes domain. And what we 
got out of this research as a result. For now, it, it kind of applies only to the care homes domain. But obviously, you know, as we get more and more data from not just care homes, but maybe from across other environments, maybe we can do a um, even better job of kind of applying this research in a bigger domain and stuff as well. The data may have been unique, but it was also complex. A feature of the data set was that it was large in the sense that there were a lot of individual care residents that are recorded in it. And it's also large because you have the time dimension that stretches through quite a long period of time. And you have some people that are obviously still living in it and some people that have since passed away historically that's still in the data set. As well as this, the data wasn't exactly continuous. So we might have a lot of instances where there's actually nothing recorded on a particular day for a particular action, for instance, about a particular person. And so that poses a challenge in how do you fill that time where there is no recorded observation? How do you deal with that? Do you assume that nothing happened? Do you make an assumption about the fact that if you have two time points at which there was an observation about somebody's state. If those two things are the same, you sort of assume that in between they're also in that state. So there are these issues about how you deal with a data set that is inherently very large, but also very sparse. So let's get into some figures. So we have around 43,000 residents that we have data for, and then out of which about 5.5K had a UTI record. So that amounts for about uh, like 12% or 12, 15% ish of all residents having a record of a UTI. This means there is a large class imbalance between those who do have a UTI, the positive class, and those who don't. This could be problematic when it comes to modelling the data. Let's move on now to the third and fourth stages of the project, establishing the baseline method and the main method. Baseline method, what we're doing here is because we have data that is collected through time, we have observations through time, the machine learning models that we were using do not inherently deal with the time dimension. They are for sort of taking in static, time-static observations you know, about the present, if you like. The baseline model works with data which compress a series of observations made over time into a single observation data point for that series. So just one value for blood oxygenation, for instance, even if there had been daily measurements taken. Yeah, so ultimately our plan was to have this baseline method and then compare it with this main method called the TIRP's base method. The main difference between those two is do we account for temporal relations, time, the time axis, the time dimension between different features and different measurements that are logged. So the baseline method just basically removes all that and then simply looks at all the measurements that are taken in the past and then predicts whether someone is likely to have a UTI or not. But the main model was trying to capture something much more useful, which was the relationship between these variables through time. Instead of just looking at each individual measurements and then predicting the outcome from those, we kind of assess and extract out the links between, you know, the connections, the, the temporal relations between each of these features, each of these pairs of uh, measurements. So things like, you know, did we see this resident A having uh, a high, a very high value of blood pressure, and then all of a sudden this dips to a very low value? Did we see that pattern? And that kind of led to a diagnosis of a UTI. So those kind of patterns with regards to the time axis is what we wanted to extract out of the measurements. And then that's what got fed into the models. Uh, whereas for the baseline method, we were just simply saying, okay, this person had a value of 90% blood O2 at this time. So why is this so important? 
well, ideally you'd be able to spot the signs of an impending UTI in advance. So the main model was being trained to identify these in the period leading up to a positive test for those residents who did end up with a UTI. So what we're doing is creating like a, an artificial time horizon and trying to predict that a number of days in advance on the basis that if we can do that, that's going to give more foresight, more, more lead time to making an early diagnosis, which means that you can treat somebody more preventatively. But how do you make sense of this longitudinal data? The answer is TERPS, which stands for Time Interval Related Patterns. Time intervals, it's basically, you know, from time A to time B, we saw this observation. And then we saw another measurement from time C to D. This period, this time interval is what we want to detect different patterns from. So if we saw a certain period of time of high pressure, and then we saw a certain period of time, it could be overlapping, it could be after of low blood pressure. This relation between different periods of time is what we want to assess and extract. And those temporal patterns are then encoded in the, into a symbolic manner, which can then be ingested by the model that contains inherently information about the time pattern, as well as the observation, which is why it has this great advantage over simply, you know, taking a period of time and, for instance, averaging the observations over it. At that point, as you average, you lose the information about the time component within the data. And it's actually the time component that's very powerful in understanding how a person behaves and how their state changes through time. And that's what's important correlating to your target you're trying to, to detect. Even when you do find a way to represent longitudinal data in time interval related patterns, the problem is further complicated by the data itself being pretty noisy. But this is precisely the problem that experienced carers are able to solve, and which the model is trying to replicate and generalise. If you already have a bad cough, it's difficult to know whether the fact you're coughing is because you normally cough or whether there's something that's making the coughing worse. And so the, we know anecdotally that the way that the experienced carers are able to figure out that there is something wrong with the care resident is that they know the care resident very well and they perceive changes in behaviour and changes in symptoms, if you like, that reflect physiological states. So the idea was here that we had a, an analytical method for replicating that detection of changes in state and patterns of behaviour that we could build into a, a machine learning pipeline. So let's go into some more detail. I think a simple way of thinking about it is that what the machine learning model is doing is learning to associate, think of it as a set of barcodes that are associated with having a UTI, they're characteristic of having a UTI. These temporal patterns you can think of as black stripes on a white background, and depending on the exact pattern in which those black stripe appears, some of, some of those can be characteristic to having a UTI, and then there'll be a whole bunch of other ones that are unspecific they are you know their patterns they exist they may correlate to other things but they they're not associated with having a UTI and that's what the machine learning model is is learning to differentiate between those patterns that are characteristic of having UTI and those those that are not moving on to the results probably the biggest concern with the results were the amount of false positives that the model predicted Here's Kodai with the figures. We have about 8,500 data points of about 8,300 where their true label is negative and the remaining 200 or so are positively labeled. So for the negatively labeled 8,300 windows, we had a false positive 
of about 6,000. So that's about a little less than a 75%-ish. That's a very high false positive rate. So the bad side of a false positive is effectively your prime wolf, right? Like you're saying that somebody's got an issue when they don't, and therefore people will you know, no longer trust the system and such like. So you need to bring that false positive rate down. You, know, you might also be treating people unnecessarily, so on and so forth. But on balance, it's better to make false positives and false negatives. But at the moment, the false positive rate is too large for us to be comfortable with it. And so it needs to have some investigation into why those false positives are occurring? Are they, you know, linked to particular genders by age, by certain terps, you know, so on, so on and so forth? At the same time, though, as we mentioned, out of the 300 or so positively labeled windows, we were able to predict that about 250 or so are truly positive. Uh, so that's about like 83-ish percent. So that's also a good sign. But again, as Eric mentioned, we need to find the reason behind this high false positive rate. So the good news is that they barely miss anyone with a UTI. But the downside is that the model is over-enthusiastic with predicting the presence of one. So now that the project is over, we wanted to find out how Kodai, Hamid and Eric felt it went. And what will happen to this work next? Overall, it's giving me a kind of insight into working in the medical fields, working with medical data, healthcare data. And I feel like I was able to kind of establish like a base for future research to come for uh, UTI diagnosis or other infections in care homes. I wanted to do a lot more uh, with regards to the project. It was unfortunate because just kind of diving into formalities of my degree, mine's incorporating a joint degree with maths and much less time is allocated to the project. And I wish, you know, I had more time. It was great working with Kodai. I was also working with the data in a slightly different way, so I had familiarity with the data, so I could help Kodai, especially especially there. But yeah, I, I learned a lot from him as well. I think he did some great work, and it's set up quite well to you know pick up to pick up what he's done and apply it elsewhere. And it's been very very valuable project. So Kodai should be very proud of what he's done. He's done an enormous amount of work, and I think. As with all research, you know, uh, you're always slightly frustrated that you could always do some more. And that's the nature of research, right? There is always yet another question. This piece of work will definitely go forwards. But like all research, there will be a, a short period of assessment and reflection so that we can then prepare the next step as carefully as possible. And from Hamid's side, I think Hamid's done a fantastic job at supervising Kodai. I know that when we come from Oxford, of course, he's familiar with that kind of mode of um, you know, supervision and, and, and tutoring. He's done a great job and together they've achieved a huge amount. And Hamid will definitely be the guardian of this to its next iteration. So I think it's, it's an exciting piece of work. It aligns very well with you know what we know from the academic literature. It also has some parallels with some other work that was done using similar methods for predicting falls in elderly residents. So as a body of work, it contributes you know more widely, and that's I think, really exciting. That was Kodai, Hamid and Eric from the Data Analysis Bureau speaking about their project to identify the means of early detection of UTIs in care homes. For more information, head to www.t-dab.com slash innovation sandbox. Thanks for listening.